All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Up this morning before the sun, fix me some coffee and a honey bun. Jumped in my pickup, gave her the gas. I'm going out to catch a five pound bass down by the lakeside, just off the ramp. All them people sleeping in their fishing camp. Some out in the pup tents, some out on the grass. They all be dreaming about that five pound bass. Oh yeah, Robert O'Keen's got me thinking about bass today, and that's okay because it's time for another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and today we have got the real pleasure of having my buddy, my pal, Brian Hendricks, the Outdoors Editor for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in the studio today, and you better believe we'll be talking about bass. And if that's not enough, I'm going to dig back into the Woodford Whiskey Medley, and we'll be talking about Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey today. And then I think I'll take it offshore for a bit for today's top 10, and I'll be counting down my top 10 dolphin lures. Hey, but before we get to the top 10, let's keep a focus on bass for today. And did you know that bass were first identified by the French when they came to Florida back in 1562? And at that time, bass were not found anywhere west of the Rocky Mountains. <clears throat> but... Through stocking and other forms of non-natural migration, bass are now not only found throughout the continental U.S. and Hawaii, but in about 75 other countries around the world where they are identified as invasive species. And because they eat like crazy and are pretty adaptable to just about any environment, they aren't an invasive species a lot of places want around. And even though we call them bass, that term really is an umbrella term for lots of kinds of fish. For example, the largemouth, smallmouth, and spotted bass are all related, but they're also closely related to crappie and bluegill. In fact, the largemouth, smallmouth, and spotted bass are all kinds of black bass, which also include the Swanee bass, the Alabama bass, the Florida bass, the Guadalupe bass, red-eye bass, and shoal bass. But striped bass and white bass, they're not part of that family at all. And striped bass can be found in both freshwater and saltwater. And that term bass even gets applied to saltwater species based on regional nomenclature like sea bass, of which there are about 475 species, or peacock bass, or channel bass, or spot tail bass. Those last two are terms that are used for redfish or red drum. So the next time someone tells you they're going bass fishing, get some clarification, because there are a hell of a lot of kinds of bass out there to fish for. And that doesn't even include basketball, basket weaving, basilix, or that ever common species, the dirty rotten bastard, which can often be found in the warmer months around America's boat ramps. So if nothing else today, you've learned a little bit more about bass. And hey, if you're digging this kind of pro knowledge, be sure to subscribe by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast and let all them bastards you fish with know about the Rodcast too. Hey, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. Okay, I am stoked today to have the Outdoors Editor for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Brian Hendricks in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. 
Hendricks is also the co-host of Ray Tucker's Arkansas Outdoor Radio Program. He is the author of Arkansas, A Guide to Backcountry Travel and Adventure, and also his new fantastic book, St. Tom's Cathedral. I can't even begin to tell you how many hundreds, maybe thousands of articles Hendricks has published about fishing and hunting, but I can tell you he is deeply knowledgeable and a flat-out fantastic writer, and inevitably I'll be singing the praises of his writing throughout our conversation today, but I also want to credit his fantastic outdoor photography as well. Now, as a prolific writer, in addition to his articles in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, his writing and photographs have appeared in Benton County Daily Record, Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Texarkana Gazette, Game and Fish Magazine, Whole Hog Sports, and Shotgun Life, to name but a few. When it comes to fishing, he's got a wealth of knowledge and can teach us all a thing or three about catching fish. And if that weren't enough, you should hear him talk about turkey hunting, which I know we're going to get to today. Brian, I am thrilled for the chance to talk with you today, and I can't thank you enough for being here on the Rodcast. Well, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be here and to uh, meet up with you again, Sid. Last time I saw you, we were in the Sea of Cortez having the time of our lives. Absolutely, and I hope we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. All right. All right, so this first question is a little bit long, so bear with me, but as a kind of roundabout way of getting into the sort of standard opening conversation we have on the Fishing Professor Show, I want to be a little preemptive here and ask a question about the profession of being an outdoor writer. And, you know, I look at the breadth of stuff you've written over the years, and I can't help but mentally situate your writing in the same vein of outdoor writing that made magazines like Field and Stream, Sports of Field, and the like so important to outdoor recreation, and in turn so important to Americana. The ability to tell great stories while also educating readers about the how-tos of outdoor activities, about conservation and ethics, and frankly about how outdoor activity teaches us how to live our lives. I read somewhere a statement you made about the craft of writing, and you said, this is a quote from you, I am a lover of words, written, sung, and spoken. Words matter, and I choose mine carefully. I earn my keep in the forest, field, and water, but people inspire and motivate me. Each day is a new stone in the pyramid of experience, wisdom, and humility. I'll meet you where you are and help you get where you want to go. Brian, I absolutely love that. So what brought you to find this intersection between the love of the outdoors and the love of the written word? You know, it's, it's a lifelong journey, really. I've, I have been in the position I'm in for over 17 years, but I've been doing it oh, for, for 30 or more. And uh, I think with all of us, you know, we start out it's a progression, Sid, you know, you start out just trying to get bylines in the beginning and uh, trying to get a check if you freelance. And as you, a position like mine with a daily newspaper, uh, you know, it used to be every, I'm going to wander here a little bit, but I, I'm, I'm actually taking you someplace. Uh, every, every major newspaper used to have an outdoor editor and they were legendary people, you know, Memphis had the great Henry Reynolds and then later uh, Larry Ray and uh, uh they just go on and on, you know, uh, uh, Mike Leggett at the Austin uh, newspaper in Texas. And, and uh, you know, the, the list is just endless. And they were fixtures in their communities. And, and one of the reasons for that was that they covered kind of a beat in the newspaper and the news industry that nobody really knew quite how to take, you know, the hunting and fishing culture. Every place has one. And 
every single person you meet that hunts, fishes, camps, hikes, anybody that's avid has got a story. And these things that they do are very important to their lives, uh, very integral to their lives and very integral to who they are as people. And if you dig around and uh, probe beyond the superficial, you learn probably, I think, more about a person by what they do in the outdoors than you do any other way. And, I, and by that, I mean this. I never really, I don't, I don't think I ever saw my dad as he was, as he really was, except when we were duck hunting. That's when all the veneers came off and I truly saw my father as the person he really was. And when we got back home, the facades came back up and, you know, that was one of the reasons I enjoyed doing that with him so much. Cause I saw him, I saw the real man that was my dad. And I kind of see that in just about everybody uh, that I know that, that, that the hunts and fishes. And so the outdoors beat at a newspaper, you know, it evolves as you, or you evolve as you grow into it. Uh, you know, you're somebody kills a deer, say, for example, well, there's that story, but when you probe deeper and you find out what makes that person tick and all the, all the little nuances of what that hunt was about, what it meant to them to be with their father or with their son or their daughter or whoever it was, a story starts to unfold and it's always a different story. The, the killing of the animal, I hate to put it that way, that's always the same, but the story that surrounds it, that is the art, that is, that is the story behind the art that makes art great. Let's play that out a little bit. And let me ask you specifically about your introduction to fishing and where your passion for fishing comes from. Okay. The passion for fishing started when I was a small kid, you know, growing up uh, actually fishing golf course ponds near where I lived. Learned how to stream fish right about that same time. Uh, had some friends that we did that with. Uh, and then kind of got away from it for a number of years. And the way I got back into this and really into fishing was... I was in dire need of a job in 1990, and um, I went to Northwest Arkansas to a town called Springdale, where I had never been before, but I knew they had a newspaper, a daily one, and I went in dressed in a three-piece suit, walked into the office there and asked to see the managing editor. Well, they thought that I was somebody worth seeing. They didn't know why I was there, and I asked, I asked him for a job, and it turned out that the outdoor editor, outdoor editor that they had was a guy named uh, Frank Thorpe, he's, he's deceased now. And Frank was a legend in that area. He was a bass fishing guide on Beaver Lake. And he had that column for years that he wrote and everybody knew him. Frank also had a little problem with, um, you know, uh, a little bit of a drinking issue and he would disappear for, for weeks, sometimes months at a time. And they had gotten tired of it and were kind of looking to replace him. And, and, and I walked and they asked me, well, do you know anything about fishing? Oh yeah, man, I know, I know fishing. And they were like, well, here's, here's what we need you to do. And they hired me and, and I, I worked up, a, you know, started to build an audience. Frank had disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. And after about two months, he reappeared and he was just, you know, ready to uh, reclaim his position. And so it was a, a real tense situation. Uh, between us. And, and uh, so I took him to lunch one day. Frank was an older guy. He was in his 50s. At that time, I was in my 20s. And I took him to lunch one day. I said, look, Frank, I, I need this job. And you're a fixture here. You're not going anywhere. So how can we make this work? What do you not want to do? Whatever you don't want to do, I'll do it. So, well, fishing is really the only thing I've, you know, that's, that's what I know. 
said, okay, so you don't want to do hunting. You don't want to do the camping. No, I don't really care anything about that. I said, okay, I'll do that. I'll stay away from your turf. And, and, and it worked. So Frank took me under his wing and uh, introduced me to all of the players in Northwest Arkansas that were, that were in the you know, heads of the fishing clubs, the bass chapters and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if, if you came in with uh, Frank, you, you had instant credibility. People trusted you and they would talk to you. And I built up, you know, I built up a, a roster of sources that way. And, um, you know, that, that goes on uh, in 1992, BASS held its 25th anniversary tournament at Beaver Lake. It all started right there. And it's a great story. You know, Ray Scott, went there to uh, under false auspices, made a pitch to the Springdale Chamber of Commerce. That he was going to do all these great things and they turned him down. But he held the tournament anyway. It turned out to be the tournament that established BASS, Bass Angler Sportsman Society. He made enough to hold the second one and on it went. So the 25th anniversary, they held that. Uh, I was assigned to do a tabloid for that. And so I just very innocently called Ray Scott's office. I thought, well, I can't do this without him. Never met him before. That's when I found out that Ray was boycotting the media because he felt like he had been uh, libeled and slandered by the media over a lawsuit that Bass was uh, involved in at that time. And his uh, receptionist told me that Mr. Scott would not speak to me today, tomorrow, or ever, and to not even bother trying again. And I try, look, I'm not interested in anything controversial. I'll just, you know, this is a big deal for us and for y'all too. I'm telling you, Mr. Scott is not speaking to the media. I tried a couple of other angles and I could feel the wind going past the receiver as it was going to the cradle. We're talking about landline phones back then. I said, look, if I just give you my name and number, would you just please give it to him? Well, it's not going to do you any good. I didn't, I know, I know, I know that, but would you just, if I do that, would you just please hand it to him? Well, you're wasting your time. I know, ma'am, I understand that, but would you please give him my name? And she kind of sighed and said, okay, okay. I said, look, from one Southerner, from a Southern man to a Southern lady, I know that you're a woman of your word and I'm not going to bother you again. I know you'll do what you say. So time goes on. I'm hitting on deadline. I left a space open, right? Hoping beyond hope. One day I'm eating breakfast. My phone rings and I pick it up. This is Brian Hendricks. Yes, sir, it is. This is Ray Scott from Montgomery, Alabama. I hear you want to talk to me about the 25th anniversary tournament. And so I started with a brand new, untouched Big Chief Indian uh, uh, tablet, filled every page front and back, beginning <laughs> to end. I think that interview lasted probably three hours, something like that. Uh, that's actually in my book, St. Thomas Cathedral. And uh you know, Ray came to town. They had the tournament. It was a big deal. Larry Nixon won it. And, uh, you know, Ray took me personally by the shoulder and introduced me to all of the players at that time in the bass fishing industry. Everybody that you needed to know was there. And I was on Ray's shoulder. You know, that advanced my career, like, I'd say seven years. You know, just it, it opened doors that, that would have taken a long, long time. So when it was all over and we were just visiting, I said, Ray, of all the people you know, all the journalists you work with and know and trust, why, why me from nowhere, Arkansas? And he said, because my secretary put in a good word for you, said I should. And it's like, that's the, that, that is the, the foundation of it right there, Sid. It's all in how you treat people, showing people respect, courtesy, 
even though we're, you know, journalism can be a rough and tumble business sometime. Ultimately, you're dealing with people. You got to treat people the way you would want yourself to be treated. What a fantastic story. So in a lot of your writing, well, in almost all of your writing, your passion is evident. But in a lot of your writing, too, particularly when you're writing about politics and policy, sometimes you exceed passion and roll right into fire and brimstone, something beyond passion and a different kind of commitment. What fires you up in that moment when your outdoor passion meets the hard realities of management and politics? Because nobody else is nobody else is out there. Let me let me rephrase that. In my in our community, the outdoors, the environment, the resource needs an advocate. And you know, the the the, the management agencies that are involved in all of that, they've got political uh considerations that they have to take into account balancing the human element with the natural element there's always a compromise but the resource itself does not have anybody speaking solely for it and there are things that are important to us all that that we all depend upon for our livelihoods and for our lives period clean air clean water as hunters we have to have habitat if we want game we have to have places to do that and the small things lead to big things. And I just kind of, I always feel like when I'm addressing those issues, it's a now or never, our backs are against the wall situation. I don't hyperbolize, but I do cut to the chase and, and just lay out the issues, what they are, what the solutions are, what the ramifications are. If, if uh, solutions aren't followed and if process isn't followed, uh, you know, I don't, I don't get into ifs and maybes and buts it's like here here's the facts as they are here's what we know cause and effect if we don't do this if, if something isn't done about this this is what is going to happen there's there's you know history is behind it so to answer your question the passion comes out because i'm passionate about it and i just i feel like nobody else is out there advocating for the things that we love the things that are important to us so i'm kind of a go-between between the people, the government, and the resource itself, I'm the one speaking up for them. And, and, and by extension, speaking up for the voiceless, uh, sightless people that are depending on the same things. There are a lot of people who are grateful for that as well. So given that, and given the things we've already talked about today so far and stuff we've talked about in the past, I'm curious if as a kid or any other time in your life, for that matter, you were a fan of reading others writing about fishing and hunting. And if so, as most writers get asked at some point in their careers, who were the writers that inspired you, that motivated you to want to be an outdoor writer? Uh, i tell you, uh, um, gosh, his name escapes me. Uh, he was with the Dallas uh, Morning News forever, and he's passed away now. And uh, he was, when I was living down there, Sid, uh, he, uh, he used to write, he, he did this uh, series of articles about canoeing the Trinity River. Uh, and they were just the, if you've ever been to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and seen the Trinity River, it's, it's just, it's just uh, uh, you know, just a horrible, it was back then, filthy and fetid and dirty and had, you know, trash all in it. And he wrote the series of articles that just, it was almost tongue in cheek, but he laid that out of what that looked like, what that experience was like. And it was just desolate, you know, and it got stuff done. It got stuff done. People, there was action because of it because he, he just described what he saw. 
And I remember that was in 1984. And I looked at that and I thought, I can do that. And that's what I want to do. Gosh, his name escapes me. And I met him and I had the privilege of telling him exactly what I'm telling you, that you were the foundation of everything that I do. And it will come to me at some point in this conversation, she said, and I'm just going to interrupt you and blurt his name out. Before it goes <laughs> away. <laughs> that sounds right. I have those moments too, where three days later, I know the answer and I just have to yell it out, even though everybody yeah. around me wonders what I'm talking about. So, all right, let's jump onto the water then. Yeah. Arkansas is an outdoor enthusiast paradise, and the fishing opportunities are fantastic. Largemouth, smallmouth, Kentucky bass, as well as white and black crappie, channel, flathead, blue cats, rainbow brown, cutthroat, and brook trout. If that's not enough, there's stripers, white bass, and all the other hybrids. Tell us about your favorite Arkansas fishing. My favorite Arkansas fishing is canoeing or wade fishing for smallmouth bass in an Ozark stream. We've got one of the, the most famous in the country called Crooked Creek, which is a tributary of the White River. We have the Buffalo National River, which was the first, the nation's first uh, national wild and scenic river. It's a, it's a national park now. Uh, it was going to be dammed. It's the last free flowing river in Arkansas. It was going to be dammed at a site called Gilbert uh, back in the late 60s. And um, it was. Uh, People got together, kept that from happening. Uh, uh, President Nixon signed it into uh, signed the you know the act that made that a national park, and the rest is history. Even though you know the uh, the operational plan for that dam is still in effect, you know if, if ever that uh, protection were lifted, that that could still be done. But smallmouth uh, bass fishing there, and then all of the smaller creeks, you know the the Spring River and the South Fork of the Spring, which is the, the entire Ozark region. Going into Missouri, not just limited to Arkansas, and even parts of Oklahoma are just filled with these great streams where you can catch, you know, smallmouth bass. You can fly fish for them, spin fish for them. Uh, my specialty is actually ultralight bait casting. I use a my favorite rig is a five foot ultralight uh, uh, bait casting rod with a uh, Shimano GT51 uh, left-handed retrieve reel. It looks like a little crappie rod, six pound ta- uh, test line. And I have actually landed on that rig, said a 19 pound striped bass. <laughs> I guess that was a shock when you were targeting uh, white bass. That was uh, actually, we were targeting walleye with it. And that was on, that was on the Washita river. Uh, that's an interesting story too. That was in 2009. And I was uh, uh, just beginning treatment for rectal cancer and I uh, was undergoing chemotherapy. I, I, I carried my chemo, in a pocket in my shirt and it was hooked up to a port in my, in my shoulder. And I had uh, contracted a really bad case of pneumonia and, you know, really felt like I was going to perish out there. It was that bad. And uh, I was with a friend and we were fishing, trolling for walleyes. We pulled over to untangle some kind of a mess that we had. And I threw this, it was a long a bomber, threw it out, it hit the surface and this big fish slurped it down. I set the hook and, we, it was a jet boat. You have to get up there by jet boat. And we, we just ran this fish up and down the river and I bought it for about, I don't know, 45 to 50 minutes and got it up. And at that point in time, it was the largest one I'd ever landed. All on a micro light. Yeah. Yeah. Six pound line. And, uh, wow. you know, the fish didn't have anywhere to go. It was in, in a pretty small river and all it could do was either go upstream or downstream. So we just followed it and wore him out. Fantastic. 
You know, one of the things that's always intrigued me about Arkansas fishing is the well-developed hatchery programs throughout the state. And I think there are, what, five warm water hatcheries and one cold water hatchery. How important is the Arkansas hatchery program to the state's fishing opportunities? They're extremely important. There is a national fish hatchery at the Norfolk Dam where uh, they, they raise trout there. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in a second, actually. Okay, there's another one at Greer's Ferry uh, a Dam that they release fish into the Little Red River. And then there is a state hatchery at Mammoth Spring where they raise trout. And so all of those go into, into the trout fishing program that we have in Arkansas, which has produced two all-tackle world records for brown trout. Uh, the one, uh, one of them was 40 pounds, four ounces, caught in 1992, I believe. That, that, that record lasted for 20 years. Been broken a few times since then, but we have... Uh, a lot of line class records on the North Fork of the White River and also on the White, White River. And then uh, they're, you know, they've got hatcheries that support, they provide catfish, you know, for the put and take fisheries around and striped bass for uh, hybrid stripers for uh, various fisheries around and, uh, and walleyes. Walleye program here is very big. A lot of people don't know this, but Arkansas is a fantastic state for walleye fishing. Uh, it's totally different kind of fishing than what you'll find up in uh, in Michigan and Minnesota and places like that. Same kind of tactics do sometimes work, sometimes don't. We just kind of do it differently here. But, oh, we also have the world record walleye. Yeah, that was a Greer's Ferry Lake fish. Oh, yeah, I did not know that about Arkansas and walleye. Yeah, hold on just a second. Let me turn this off. But the same lake uh, caught uh, produced the world record hybrid, too. It's twenty over 20 pounds. Wow. Well, you know, I, I had read about and I was intrigued by uh, the history of the Jim Hinkle Spring River uh, hatchery, uh, one of the trout hatcheries, because if I'm not mistaken, um, when it was built, and that's the one that's out on the island uh, uh, in, um, oh, I'm trying to remember, it's on... Uh, yeah, on the Spring River. At on the Spring River, yeah. And it's out on that island. And if I'm not mistaken, when it was opened in 1974... It was owned and developed by Kroger Company to raise trout for Kroger grocery stores. That's right. And then in 1985, Kroger donated the facility to Arkansas Game and Fisheries Commission. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting backstory on the history there of, you know, trying to raise fish initially for table fare and then having it become uh, a primary provider of just a great recreational fisher fishery. Yeah, and uh, it ran into some trouble a few years ago because there were uh, there was some disease in trout that were uh, introduced that way, and so they had to. Well, it got flooded. Also, there were a couple of things that happened. It got flooded during a flood, which cut the capacity of that hatchery down to a fraction of what it was. And then the game and fish had to really search diligently to find a source of disease-free trout to raise in there, so that you know, they wouldn't release pathogens into the spring river. And they finally uh, renovated it. It's back to full capacity now and up and running and uh, doing what it was meant to do. But yeah, it is an interesting story. Very interesting. I'm just going to say it, you know, of the several times I've fished in Arkansas, I have not trout fished in Arkansas, nor walleye fished. And now I really want to. I've trout fished in Missouri and I've fished the White River, which is sort of legendary Arkansas trout river, but I fished there for white bass for an article I was writing, but not for trout. I got to get up, get over there and trout fish, particularly after what you just said about the world records and such. 
Yeah. And uh, I have some friends. We take a trip every uh, the la- uh, third week in January every year. And it's always very cold, usually in the snow. And the fishing is always fantastic. Fish are usually very large. I think it was a 28-inch brown trout that I caught there last uh, January. And we went also uh, during Memorial Day weekend a couple of years ago with a guy named Craig Yowell. And he, uh, he works out of a, a, a guide a, a lodge up there. And uh, he's uh, recently, it was in Field and Stream, I think that uh, one of his clients caught, I think, a 34-pound brown trout. That's a big brown. It is. And uh, that one day I was telling you about, we caught, I caught personally four over 25 inches and a rainbow that was 22 inches that I got a citation for. Uh, not, not, not a bad kind of citation. They gave me a, <laughs> you know? You're talking angler language. I got you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They gave me a pen and a nice little uh, certificate to go on the wall. And we released that fish unharmed. And that was probably the greatest day of trout fishing ever for me. It was, it was fantastic uh, using sculpins and, you know, had the shore lunch. That's uh, a, a traditional part of a guided white river uh, trout fishing trip. And it's just an experience. It's something that if you live here, you kind of get accustomed to it. You kind of uh, take it for granted, but people do come from all over the world to fish here. And it's a totally different experience. It's a tailwater fishery. The water can be very high and very fast and the way you fish depends on what the water levels are. And they, they talk in terms of generators. Oh, they're running one at full shoals or they're running eight. And they're talking about generators, how many hydro power, hydro power generators are running and everything is determined by that. Then you got the reservoirs themselves above those fisheries. And those have got everything, the smallmouth bass, the largemouth, the spotted bass, the stripers, the hybrids, the walleyes, the panfish. They're, they're just fantastic fisheries. If I plan a trout trip, I need to come in the winter is what you're saying. It's not, you don't have to. In fact, I have some great fishing in the summertime too. Uh, One of the great uh, revelations in 2006, I did what, or 2007, I did the uh, summer smallmouth tour. Every week I went to a different stream and fished uh, with two or three people and did an article about it. And the, you know, the story is that when they built the dams on the White River, it obliterated the warm water fisheries and they stocked trout to mitigate the loss of those fisheries. So they went from smallmouth bass to trout. And um, the people that uh, lived up there were so angry about it for years that they didn't fish for the trout. And when they finally got onto it, you know, they were catching 10, 12 pound rainbows. And of course, that got fished out fairly quickly. During the summer smallmouth tour in 2007, we floated uh, a very well-known trout section near Mountain View, Arkansas. And just by luck, we got into smallmouth bass, some of the biggest that I've ever been into all day long, in a place where they're not supposed to be anymore. You know, it was trout water. And every fish we caught, you know, was uh, two and a half, three, four pounds. It was amazing. And I've never been able to replicate that experience again. The water level was just right that day. The water clarity was just right. The fish were feeding just right. The moon phase. I've been, I don't know, eight times since then. I never have uh, experienced that again. Wow. That sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, let's talk bass. You mentioned the, the beginnings of uh, bass tournament uh, starting with BASS in Arkansas. And Arkansas has got a reputation for just having a great bass fishing uh, fishery everywhere. 
and also for nearly endless places to bass fish. And if I'm not mistaken, there are four Arkansas lakes listed by Bassmasters as the top 100 best bass lakes in the country. So tell us, what makes Arkansas bass fishing so dynamic? Well, we have good habitat. Uh, we have good river systems. Uh, our, our climate is right. We have a pretty temperate climate. So fish have a growing season. It's pretty much, you know, 12 months a year. Now, our habitat for Florida strain largemouths really only encompasses about half the state, and that's the southern half. And so they don't do as well here as they do in Texas or Mississippi, you know, because we're at a northern latitude. But, you know, we do have the northern strain. We have Kentucky spotted bass. We have native uh, smallmouths. But the habitat is good. We've got a diversity of, uh, well, you know, if you get on like Dardanelle, for example, which is one of those top 100s and consistently uh, one of the, you know, one of the most uh, highest producing uh, lakes in Arkansas as far as, you know, number of fish per acre and all that. There are places on that that look like the Louisiana marshlands in South Louisiana. You can get back and, and just get lost in all these great spawning areas. So there's a lot of spawning habitat on Lake Dardanelle, the rest of the Arkansas River, not so much, uh, except at the lower half, which is very famous bass, a big bass country. Then you get the highland reservoirs, bull shoals and beaver and a and, uh, little bit of table rock lake, uh, deep, clear, rocky water, very clean. Uh, you know, your growth rates aren't as aren't as uh, rapid there, but it's still uh, very good habitat. Growth rates are pretty good. Fish sizes are good. Then you get into South Arkansas and the Delta country, the Arkansas River Delta, the White River, uh, the, where all those rivers meet. And, you know, it's just vast when you get into the White River National Wildlife Refuge, Felsenthal uh, National Wildlife Refuge and Cache River, all of that, all of that wild country down there is all these oxbows, Sid and all these sidewaters and sloughs and everything. And, and, you know, you can catch a double digit bass on any cast, any day of the week down there. You just never know. And so talk to me about strategy. Well, generally speaking, what are the preferred methods for targeting largemouth in Arkansas? Down there, you're going to be using big worms, you know, uh, tw 10 to 12 inch uh, worms, name your color. Jigs are real good. Your water quality in South Arkansas is going to be clear, but, stained if that makes sense in other words there's going to be a lot of a uh, lot of uh, nutrients in the water it's going to have a cloudy look to it but but it's clear it's not turgid and muddy you know although it does it does get like that when it rains so you know the visibility underwater is not very high so you need things that are big that fish can see and can feel or hear so you know uh, chatter baits at certain times of the year are real good uh, there's a lot of cover, a lot of wood, a lot of brush, not much rock down there, but just a lot of things uh, that fish can hide under and break you off if you're not using the right tackle. So, you know, you're using pool cue size rods and, uh, you know, very uh, wide, uh, large diameter line, big reels, that kind of thing. And uh, so that's South Arkansas. In North Arkansas, it's a whole different animal. You know, you're, you're, you're fishing light line uh limber uh limber rods you know medium action or even medium light fishing deep drop shots uh deep diving crankbaits uh small soft plastics things like that you're, you're fishing deep rocky structure there um and then in the middle of areas like dardanelle and the arkansas river valley uh 
Western Arkansas, things like that. It's kind of a combination of the two because you have a con uh, alternating deep and shallow. You've got deep structure, shallow cover. And so it's kind of pick your poison there. Now, the big thing lately, of course, is forward facing sonar and side scan sonar. And people have been have learned to get off the banks here, target fish in deep, uh, you know, deep structure and deep cover, 25, 30 feet. That's changed the game quite a bit, too. That's interesting. Um, we, I was just talking with some folks about how side scan has changed fishing for everybody everywhere. So given Arkansas's reputation for fishing, I think it's important that we also note that Arkansas is also home to several great tackle manufacturers, Pradco, Arky, Gideon Hooks, Denali Rods, and so many others, um, that I think there's just such a great industrial uh, culture there as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it was a real pleasure over the years, especially early in my career, to meet and break bread with people like Bill Norman and Cotton Cordell. I actually know those people. Those are some of the pioneers of our sport, you know, that invented some of the, the great lures that we, you know, that are part of our heritage. And to have known those guys, you know, Bobby Dennis, who uh, is still around, you know, was one of the great lure designers for Cotton Cordell and later for Pradco. Uh, We've just got that history here. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Forrest Wood, founder of Ranger Boats, was up in flipping, and uh, he served on the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission for seven years, and I had the distinct pleasure of getting to know him and know him well. Uh, uh, Ron Pierce, founder of Bass Cat Boats, just down the road in Mountain Home, also served on the Game and Fish Commission. Down in South Arkansas, you've got the Ward family, founders and owners of War Eagle Boats. You've got Express Boats over in Hot Springs, who uh, just uh, two days ago, Jason Christie, who won the Bassmaster Classic, came to town to personally thank the people that, at the factory that built his boat. And I got to talk to him and got to talk to the guy that designed and built Jason Christie's boat. We take those things for granted here, but, you know, uh, like I say, tournament, modern tournament fishing started in Arkansas. And for the longest time, you know, we had uh, we had George Cochran and Larry Nixon and Ron Shuffield and just the eminent names in the sport. They were all right here. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the professional bass fishing and everything that spins off of that, the recreational market does kind of follow the, the professional. We had them all right here. It was it was just a great resource that you could pick up the phone anytime and be on a first name basis with any of these people. And, you know, just get a great article, even go fishing with them, you know. That's fantastic. I'm going to tell you a story about fishing with yeah. Cochran one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've fished with him many times, but this one really stands out. And this is why George Cochran is George Cochran. We were on Lake Washita. We'd fished together uh, one day, and the lake was really low. And he was catching fish over in these pockets with these, with a, it was called gunfish uh, uh, stick bait. A couple of weeks later, the lake had come up, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 feet. And it was all in the trees along the bank. And so this time he was flipping, you know, jigs and worms. But he'd narrowed it down, Sid, to fish were on cherry bark oaks at a certain place. They weren't on any other kind of, they weren't on willows. They weren't on red oaks or, a, you know, cherry bark is a red oak, but. They, but they were on, uh, no, I'm sorry, willow oaks, my bad, willow oaks. And he narrowed that down and we'd go from willow oak to willow oak and willow oak and just caught daylights out of them. And there were people practicing for a BFL tournament around there that flailed and, and uh, struggled and, 
you know, uh, couldn't figure it out. George narrowed it down in, in probably about 25 minutes and, and caught enough to have won any tournament that would have, that would have been going on that day. You know, they called him gentleman George, but, uh, you know, he, he, he invented so many different ways of fishing and, you know, his tournament career was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and all, mostly because if I remember correctly, he didn't always do things exactly the way everybody else was doing things. Now he's very idiosyncratic and so is Nixon. You know, they're, uh, uh, they're related. And, uh, I go back to, uh, I guess it was two years ago. George holds a uh, annual cleanup at a place called Biomeda Wildlife Management Area. He's as probably more avid a duck hunter than he is a fisherman. A lot of people don't know that, but he's got a, a place down there and he holds this cleanup annually. And it's kind of under control now, but the first couple of years we hauled out dishwashers and washing machines and, you know, just uh, trailer loads of trash out of there. And, uh, so at the end of one of those two years ago, we stayed and uh, Nixon stayed with us and uh, another guy named BJ Knowles, who's a, a pretty well-known fisherman in South Arkansas. And just listening to those guys trade stories back and forth all night long, you know, with a football game on the TV, you know, and some adult beverages passing around. Just one thing after another, you heard about the 82 classic that uh, I guess Nixon won and you heard about the 86 classic that, the first one that Cochran won, which happened to be the very first fishing story I ever wrote or tournament story was when he won that. Uh, you know, he won another one, I think, in 96. But just to, and, and, and the thing that stands out about it is always in all these classics that George was a contender in. Oh, if I would have just gotten one more fish, you know, I was down to the last 20 minutes. One more fish is all I needed. And, you know, they never quit. They never give up. That's one of the things that really stands out about people like that is they are as competitive as any athlete you will ever meet at that level. Absolutely. All right, let's get off the water for a second and move into the woods and the fields and talk turkey. And I'd be tempted to talk hunting in general, but as you know, I'm a gator fan, so most likely I'd be making jokes about hog hunting. But that would just lead us down the path of a SCC oh, hey, gator hey, razor. We like, we like gators here too, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and gators and razorbacks don't get along all that well. <laughs> now, uh, the razorbacks like to stay away from that water. The gators will get them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we'll stick to gobblers for now. So right. you just published a new book called St. Tom's Cathedral, which really is a fantastic read. Tell us a bit about the book and what it means to you to have written such a great book about an activity that you clearly have a lifelong passion about. Well, it was kind of, you know, it was my pandemic project more than anything. When that hit in 2020, I was, uh, had gone down to Oklahoma to participate in a controlled turkey hunt at a place called Cross Timbers Wildlife Management Area. And so I got there three days early, did some scouting and uh, at night, you know, there's nobody else there. So I'm sitting in a chair, you know, by, under a lantern, uh, you know, had dinner and everything. It's like I'm bored. I got out my laptop and put it in my lap and I started writing. And by the end of those, the end of that hunt, I had the, the outline of a book started. And the premise of it is this, is that in 2009, I was diagnosed with uh, advanced stage three rectal cancer. And um, it was already out and in the lymph nodes. And, you know, if I'd have waited much longer to find it, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So, you know, I, I was put on a, a 
you know, put on chemo and radiation, 25 radiation treatments, almost 10 months of chemo, a couple of operations. It was, it was intense. And while uh, I'm going through this, I'm sitting in the oncologist's office, uh, having him tell me all these things that were about to happen to me. And my wife was there with her sister and they were dabbing away tears and lightly weeping, you know, and, uh, so I, I, he got to the part where I was going to have an intravenous port put in and he explained how that work is going to go in the shoulder. The chemo would hook up to that. And I said, well, does it matter which shoulder it goes in? He says, no. And I said, well, I need it, you know, in the left shoulder because turkey season starts next month and I've, I've got to be able to shoot a shotgun. And you talk about the ladies' tears drying up. They, uh, they looked up and they, my wife looked at me and she says, you've got cancer and you're worried about turkey hunting. I said, well, I mean, you know, I'm going to be alive in April. I'm not going to miss turkey season. And this doctor was just looking at me, boring holes through me. He's, a, he's an Indian gentleman, Dr. Govindarajan. And he says, finally, I think you are going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it was, Sid, is that, you know, when you're in that position, all right, you're already fighting for your life. You've gotten the bad news. You know, it's getting ready to happen. You are girding yourself to fight for your life. And that's what I was looking at was I've got to have something to get me through the next couple of months. Turkey season has meant a lot to me. I've got to grab hold of that, to pull me through spring, to get a foothold into summer, to get me a foothold on into autumn so I can look forward to deer hunting to get me on through the next day and the next day and the next month and the next season. I mean, you're living and fighting day to day to day. So that's in the prologue of the book. Uh, that's, that's the premise of it. And so it gets on after that to, it started out, it started out as just a straight turkey hunting book, a, a litany of dead birds and, uh, and, how, and how they got dead. And I sent that to, that was, you know, I sent that to a friend of mine from high school very close friend of mine. She works for the University of Chicago named Claire Perrins. And she's very literary and I trust her judgment. And I asked her what she thought and she read it and she answered, replied and said, uh, you know, I don't know enough about the subject matter to have an opinion on that. But what I think you need to do is to develop these relationships that you hint at in here and flesh those out. And, and it kind of ticked me off, you know, it's like, well, it's not what it's about. And she said, no, but it needs to be. I mean, for me to be interested in it, that's what I want. And I think other people would feel the same way. And so I thought about it and thought about it. I thought, you know, she's right. Uh, the story is the story behind art that makes art valuable. And there always is some. And so it became then a book of uh, personal growth. It, it was a, it's a turkey hunting journey. It starts out with me making every freaking mistake you can possibly make as a rookie turkey hunter without anybody really to show you along. And it encompasses a lot of anecdotes that occur, like, for example, you know, going into my very first turkey hunt, ending that and going over to the University of Oklahoma library dressed in camo to pick up some photographs, not knowing that I was stepping in that building among all those students precisely at the moment the Columbine massacre is underway. And utterly freaking them out. I didn't know it was happening. You know, uh, I heard about that later when I got back to my office, my truck didn't have a, a radio in it. And I, I mean, I was horrified. So from that day on, I don't wear camo after a hunt, you know, I, I get back into street clothes just because, you know, it was just such a horrific experience. Uh, 
but anyway, back to the hunting part of it. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a story about, you know, it's a story of growth and redemption and forgiveness and the things that we all as people go through in life loss. I talk about the loss of my son there. I talk about substance abuse, the suicide of a good friend that was a member of our hunting club, some heavy stuff in there, you know, but it's all woven together with the, with the common thread of turkey hunting. It, it, everything is, it follows this, uh, the stream of turkey hunting through there. It's about men's relationships and mentorships and, uh, you know, just people of all walks of life getting together that are bound together by this love of the hunt, the brotherhood of the, of the turkey hunter and, helping each other through, not just in the hunting part of it, but through the personal parts of our lives. I think I went through almost 32 drafts of it, Sid, before I got to what you read. And, uh, and I, Claire said I did it right. So I trust her judgment. I would agree. It's such a fantastic book and so powerful. And, you know, as somebody who's just been enthralled with outdoor writing my entire life, I love all the hunting parts of it. I love all the descriptions of where the hunt take, takes place and the frustration of, uh, you know, missing that Tom. And, but I, I think you're right. I think it's the power of the descriptions of those relationships. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget, uh, the bit that you wrote about, uh, your son, um, and his struggle with, uh, substance abuse, uh, and just all really powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, just yeah. a great book. You know, and the thing uh, that, that, that actually caused a lot of dissension in my family because we in the South don't really like to air our dirty laundry, you know? And uh, my wife, ex-wife, ex-wife, <laughs> uh, she really, really opposed that being in there. But my thought of it was, look, there are a lot of people out there that have somebody in their life like that. The one they don't talk about, the one that they, you know, just kind of keep uh, uh, behind closed doors. And uh, they're embarrassed by it or they're humiliated by it. It reflects badly on the family or whatever. Uh, but everybody, say everybody, a lot of people have somebody close to them in their lives. And my hope was that if they read that part, my story, that maybe they wouldn't feel so alone, you know? I think that's great. And not to make light of that, I think I am that guy in my family. The moment I took a job at University of Florida, I became that guy for everybody. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, yeah. I, I, I think we can safely acknowledge your turkey expertise, your bass expertise, but I also think it's impossible for you and I to have a conversation without coming around to the Marlin story. And this is a story I love. And then, um, in fact, uh, Jim Hendricks and I from Saltwater Sportsman were just down at the Miami Boat Show talking about this story. But the truth of it is, this is your story, and it was your Marlin, and the rest of us were just along for the ride. So, Brian, if you would, tell my listening crew the Brian Hendricks Marlin story. Well, you know, there's so many things about that. You know, we, we were all down there as part of a golf and Marlin fishing tournament, which was an odd combination, right? And uh, so we, you remember we went out on this ponga that was barely seaworthy and we're halfway, you know, to where we're going. And uh, suddenly the motor stops and this guy, this guy that we had jumps on top of this motor, like a buck and bull and he's pitching seas and he opens up the, uh, you know, the cowling and starts uh, empties a big jug of oil into this thing and, uh, you know, screws it back down and gets back on and starts back up again. All the guy's tackle was dilapidated. His reels were rusty. His line was rotten, you know, and uh, we're out there like, well, I guess we're just taking a boat ride, but Jim Hendricks and Brandon Hendricks brought their own stuff. Good stuff. 
I guess because they're accustomed to this sort of thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we got out there and uh, the seas calmed and the sun came out and we, you know, caught some small mahi-mahi, pretty good amount. And uh, at some point in the day, the fish quit biting and, uh, you know, we had our lunch and we were just kind of thinking about going back in. And I guess it was uh, Brandon or Jim, one of the two, spotted two fins up in the air of a couple of uh, marlin that were just kind of lazing around on the surface. So he alerted the, uh, the captain who drove the pongo over there. Now, you got to realize also that we're overloaded. We've probably got too many people in this boat anyway. And uh, he goes over there and Brandon throws out a uh, bait and this marlin takes off with it. I mean, just, you know, streak, streaking line off this rod. And when he uh, closed the bail on it, I guess he had to drag set a little too tight and it just snapped it just like that. So he hooked up, rigged up the other one and threw it out there. And the same thing happened. This fish takes off, this other marlin takes off with this bait and the rod is just, you know, singing. It's got this high pitched buzz going on. And I looked at Brandon and he looked at me and says, mine broke off. You're up. Oh, hell yeah. You know, so I grabbed this rod and clicked the, clicked the bail shut on it. And uh, I, I see it in my dreams, Sid, you know, this fish tail walking the way they do in the stories and the books and the things that we've always read and going up and shaking its head and slamming back down and getting on the surface and beating its head against the water, trying to throw this bait off and, you know, it's going under the boat and you all have your GoPros down there filming as it goes by and then it would take off on another run. And I'm uh, you guys are herding me up toward the front of the boat and back to the back of the boat and trying to keep me from tripping over stuff. And, you know, things flying and uh, everybody yelling out orders and instructions and excitement and everything. And and then finally, you know, we get in fact, it, it came flying on board, jumped on board and put a pretty good gash in your leg, as I recall. Yeah, I think we were all shocked that the captain actually gaffed a marlin. That was, I think, caught us all off guard. We would have never expected that. Well, no, he didn't gaff it. It came on board and it's thrashing around, and he just jumped on his back with his great big knife and just cut the back. It's like, whoa, no, don't do that. Yeah. And so uh, there we had it. But, yeah, um, that that was about a 100-pounder, and it's still the biggest fish I've ever landed. I will never remember. I think uh, Brandon and I looked at each other and both said, we can't all give him instructions. So somebody back off because we were all just yelling, do this, do that. (laughs) It was was fantastic. And uh, like I say, man, I still see it in my dreams. In fact, I sent that video you made, uh, Vinga Supadre. Right. uh, Found that and uh, sent it to a friend of mine last night saying, uh, you know, this is this is a story I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she was enthralled by it. I mean, the, the video work and the production on that thing was excellent, the music and everything, but it yeah. captured it, you know? It was such a great trip, and that event right there was just fantastic. I've got some great pictures and great video from that. I think it may be some of the best Marlin footage I've ever shot, actually. Oh, it was fantastic, because some of it was shot at the water line, you know, where you see this fish rocketing up out of the water and, you know, just shaking and dancing, and then it comes back down with this massive splash. I, you know, I can see how people, I can see how people uh, experience that once and say, that's it for me, Marlin forever. You know, I, I get it. I get it. All right. So, money, saying, I'd be there too. <laughs> yeah. so saying that, and that trip was great. It's a fun story and it was a great group of people to be with and you got your Marlin. So yeah. we've got a tradition here on the fishing professor show to ask one final wrap up question of all of our guests. 
Right. So you got your marlin, but what's your grail fish? What's the fish that's out there on your bucket list that you still want to catch? I would say probably a blue marlin, a big one, maybe yeah. a big blue fin, but I think a big blue marlin would be just the ultimate for me. Yeah. Those were striped marlin that, that we were on to that day. So yeah, a nice big blue marlin. What a, what a great yeah. bucket list fish. So hang into one about three or 400 pounds or no, they grew up to about what? 1500. Yeah. They'll go big. Anything over a thousand, the granders, that's the big target, but yeah, that would be All right. That's yeah. it. That's my grail. That's my, that's my grail fish. All right. I give it up. <laughs> I want to be there when you do it. I want to be there yelling yeah. at you when you do it. <laughs> so. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I remember, I just never forget, you know, Brandon's got his arms around my shoulders, pushing me and uh, you know, and oh, the front to the back. And, uh, and do you remember when, when we finally got the fish subdued and everybody got to that side. Oh, and the whole panga was going it. over. Oh my God. <laughs> we almost capsized it. And so then on the way back, we got, uh, the guy has to climb back on the, on the motor and fill it with oil again. <laughs> and, uh, remember he dropped his oil cap in the water and yep. he dove down yep. to get it. Yep. Yep. Uh, one of the other things I remember from that is all those Makos jumping and I just wanted to go Mako fishing too. That was just great. Yeah. Hey, Makos jumping. There were porpoises. I, I don't remember any whales, but, no. uh, and I also remember that golf, uh, that golf tournament that we had. Oh uh, God. I was so, I was so hungover. They brought six o'clock in the morning and I'm dehydrated and they bring us all a six pack of beer and I don't play golf. I mean, all I was doing was tagging along at that point. So that's <laughs> your, that's your, that's your, uh, your grail fish. But I guess in honor of the new book, St. Tom's cathedral, I should ask you, do you have a grail Turkey too? A grail uh, hunt. Yeah. What's the grail? What's the grail hunt? I think for me, that would be a big, a Rocky mountain, bighorn sheep. That's, that's the one thing that, that, uh, that really comes to mind. The one thing that I would really like to do, you know, we can, we can, I, I used to say it would be elk, but I think it's Rocky mountain, bighorn. That would be so fun. It's so beautiful out there. So yeah. Brian, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the Rodcast today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and I hope the book is a great success. And as I've said before, this is a book that will sit among other great turkey hunting books like those by Tom Kelly, Henry Edwards Davis, Archibald Rutledge, and Gene Nunnery. It's really a fantastic book that I recommend not just to turkey hunters or hunting enthusiasts, but to anyone who really appreciates great outdoor writing. And yes, it is available on Amazon, so order a few copies today. Brian, with all sincerity, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thank you, Sid. It is always a pleasure. And thanks for having me on. It's always, uh, you know, just always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thanks, man. All right. It is time again for the bourbon break. That time in the Fishing Professor Rodcast when we step back off the blue-green waters for a few minutes to think about those golden brown spirits we love so much. And yes, while this is the bourbon break, we're going to go a little bourbon adjacent today and take a look at Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey. Now, Unlike a lot of other straight malt whiskeys that are 100% malted barley, the Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey actually carries a mash bill of 51% malted barley and 47% corn and then 2% rye. So this really this straight malt whiskey is just as close to a bourbon as one can get. 
since a bourbon mash bill would have the corn at at least 51%. But like the 51% minimum corn requirement for bourbon, the Woodford straight malt whiskey just slides in under the regulation of the 51% requirement for a malt whiskey to carry the name malt whiskey with a 51% mash bill. So a whiskey that has 100% malt barley, though, is known as an American single malt, not a straight malt whiskey like the Woodford malt whiskey. Kind of makes you want to write a novel about a badass cowboy named Walt Miskey, doesn't it? Walt Miskey sauntered through the swinging doors into the saloon, pushing aside two tenderfoots in his way. He leans on the old wooden bar and orders a double shot of malt whiskey, Walt Miskey does. Yeah, that's not that bad. Old Zane Gray would be pleased, but then again, old Zane Gray was a right powerful fisherman, too. Okay, so like all of the Woodford spirits, the straight malt whiskey is produced by the Brown Foreman Corporation based out of Louisville, Kentucky, and it's one of the largest American-owned companies in the booze business. They own other brands, you know, like Jack Daniels, Corbell, Old Foster, Early Times. So yeah, the Woodford straight malt whiskey is really designed to appeal to bourbon drinkers more so than fans of the American single malts. And given Woodford's expertise in appealing to bourbon drinkers, this makes sense. The Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey is a 90.4 proof whiskey, and it's got a great rich brown color, kind of an auburn tinted with a golden light in it. Its nose leans toward kind of a nuttiness, maybe nuts and wood, but certainly the sweetness of the heavy rye, like a cross between toffee and rich fruit fruits like dates or apricots. The woodiness is nice too, and the toasted oak scents blend well with the nutty sweetness. On the palate, the wood takes up the dominant position and the nutty wood flavors really stand out. The sweetness is here too, but it comes in a rich kind of sweetness, like a heavy dark chocolate punctuated with spices with some dark cherry underpinnings. That sweetness is influenced by the relatively high corn count compared with American single malts, and that sweetness really teases a bourbon flavor in this malt whiskey. Of course, the malt is paramount here alongside the wood and the nuts, making for a pleasant, deep flavor without becoming peaty like some single malts can be. There's also some heat here, particularly on the back end, which is odd in the lower proof of the bottle. But that heat is nice. It complements the nutty wood taste making. It seems almost spicy, like a good black peppercorn. Comprehensively, the flavor is consistent and thick. It grabs onto the tongue in a warm embrace. That embrace hangs on at the end of the taste spectrum, and the finish lets go of the here, uh, lets go of it, and kind of allows that nutty, woody sweetness to hang on for a while. It's a pleasant linger, and I think one of the few whiskeys that I look forward to the finish as the best part of the experience. Now, if we're speaking in innuendo, some of you might say that makes me rather selfish and inattentive to the buildup to the finish, but I assure you that is not the case. All in all, the Woodford Straight, Walt, Straight Malt Whiskey. Now I got Walt Miskey on the brain. Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey is a good partner to the other spirits in the Woodford line, and its bourbon-adjacent taste make it a good companion for other Woodford whiskeys. It's a good malt whiskey for bourbon drinkers. It doesn't swallow you up in pure maltness, and it reminds you about what you love about bourbon. Now, I have to be honest, too. It's not a remarkable whiskey. It's a good, reliable whiskey. It's not the whiskey you're going to describe as phenomenal, but it's also not the whiskey you would ever turn down or that you'd be hesitant to serve or drink. It's a good, respectable whiskey. There's nothing negative to say about Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey. It is a bourbon drinker's malt whiskey. 
And since it lists for about 30 to 35 bucks a bottle, it's also very reasonably priced. But that price also indicates that this isn't a $50 or $60 bottle. For the price, it's a really good whiskey. I should say, too, that because of the heavier flavor of the straight malt whiskey, I really like pairing wood for neat with a nice cigar and a fire, and you've got a great moment of relaxation. So those are some of my thoughts about Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey. And now a word from our sponsor. Yeah, that's right. We have no sponsor. So our final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Breaks are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the memory of the bar in the back of Zero's Sub Shop in Norfolk, Virginia on Hampton Boulevard, Thanks for never carting any of us and giving us middle schoolers a place to learn to drink. And yeah, here's to hell. May the stay there be as fun as the way there. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. And those, for those of you feeling the need to email me to complain about making a joke about underage drinking, please feel free to email me at sid at dot getoverit.com. And now let's get back to the Rodcast. All right. You know, you've been waiting for it all, all week. You've been looking forward to Wednesday. Your emails have been asking for it. It's time for the professor's top 10 of the week. Oh, I love the top 10 and clearly you guys do too. And this week we're going to go with a requested top 10 list and I'm going to count down my top 10 Dolphin Dorado Mahi Mahi Lures. But before I do, a couple of rules and caveats to this week's list. First, I'm not going to address variations in skirts. Look, everyone who fishes for Mahi know that skirts with Ballyhoo is the absolute best way to target Dorado. But it's almost senseless, if not impossible, to try to discern between one skirt manufacturer's skirt and another. Nor is it worth talking about which color skirt works best. Colors are anglers' preference and driven by local conditions. I've known anglers who insist that blue and white skirts are the only way to go for dolphin. Others insist black and purple and others on pink. So I'm just not going to wade into the skirts or skirt color debate. And you can roll with that on your own. Just know that if you're fishing for dolphin, you should have a big array of skirts in various sizes and colors. Of course, we can debate whether plastic skirts or feathered skirts play into this, but I'm talking just about plastic skirts like Boone Squid skirts or octopus trolling hoochies. I will include a few weighted head feathers or mylar skirts as chuggers and other trolling lures. So if you're here to look at my skirt, you're trolling in the wrong place. If we take skirts out of the formula, then what this top 10 list covers is a bunch of trolling and casting lures that are great dolphin lures from peanuts and chickens to bulls and cows. These are my top 10 dolphin lures. Oh, one other thing. 
I'm not going to include daisy chains in this list. So while daisy chains like Boone's Bird daisy chain and other daisy chains are great, I'm leaving them out of this list. Maybe one day I'll do a daisy chain top 10, but they're out for today. Oh, also keep in mind that the lures that dolphin tend to strike are the same lures that tuna, especially blackfin tuna and wahoo also strike. So there is a lot of overlap here with my blackfin lists and my wahoo list. Oh, one other caveat. The fact of the matter is that when mahi-mahi are biting, it doesn't really matter what you're trolling or casting. I have several friends who have used to have contests to see what the craziest thing you can catch a dolphin on. I've seen dolphin caught on beer cans with wire and a hook running through them. I saw a buddy of my brother's once rig a Barbie doll with a wire and a hook and landed dolphin after dolphin. So my cynical side says it doesn't really matter what you're pitching to dolphin. If they're hungry, they're going to hit. But my fishing professorial ego says there's an art to all of this dolphin fishing, and I'm going to share my wisdom. So here they are, my top 10 mahi-mahi Dorado dolphin lures. And at number 10, I'm going to go with Williamson Ballyhoo Combo. Now, in some ways, I'm kind of cheating with this on the list because it's really Williamson's scoop head sailfish catcher, a chugger head with a plastic skirt that Williamson combines with a Williamson Lures Ballyhoo, uh, plastic Ballyhoo. The chugger head leaves a great bubble trail and the imitation Ballyhoo, well, it does an amicable, amicable job of mimicking a Ballyhoo when you don't have a live or dead who to add to your chugger head. So it's the kind of lure I like to keep in the box for when I run out of bait or if I don't have bait to rig with a chugger. Okay, at number nine, CNH Stubby Bubbler is a classic dolphin lure. It combines a chugger head like CNH's famed little stubby head and a bubbler like CNH's little bubbler and then adds flow-through holes to the head to create a lure head that runs just below the surface and creates an attention-getting bubble stream. And yes, you can run it with a ballyhoo or strip bait, but it also works great just rig plain. All right, at number eight, I'm going to go with a tried-and-true trolling lure, and that's the Island Islander Junior. It's a bullethead trolling lure that fishes as well empty as it does with ballyhoo or strip bait. It's a smaller version of the renowned Islander trolling lure. It's designed for fishing calm waters and higher-speed trolling. That metal bullet head really cuts through the water, and the big eye on the head really conveys the image of a prey species. Definitely a must-have dolphin classic lure. My number seven preferred mahi-mahi lure is the Boone-rigged feather baits. Yeah, I know. I'm walking the edge on my disclaimer about skirts, but it's on my list, so make to it's on my list, so make like a dolphin and bite me if you think I'm cheating here. The Boone-rigged feather baits can certainly be run with ballyhoo or strip baits, but they also are very effective when run naked. My number six spot goes to Captain J Fishing Offshore Big Game Trolling Lures, and I'm putting them in this list for two reasons. First, I have a soft spot for Key West local companies, and second, I love the design of the metal heads on these trolling lures. The holes in the golden head help the lure move more realistically underwater, creating a great swimming motion when trolled either with ballyhoo strip bait or even empty. All right, at number five, I'm going with the Rapala X-Rap Magnum 20 or 30, but I'm doing so with a bit of strategy for you. When the water gets hot and the fish go deep, dolphin anglers know you need to either jig deep or troll deep, running, running the lures a little bit deeper to get the fish to come up into the 20 or 30-foot depth range where they can see the baits you're running at the surface. 
This is the concept of running a dredge when the fish are deep. However, particularly for smaller vessels, when running a dredge can be a hassle. The Rapala X-Rap Magnum 20s and 30s will run at depth of 20 to 30 feet, drawing up fish within vision range of your full spread. More important, though, the X-Rap Magnums are deadly lures themselves and will draw the deeper strike. I tend to like to run the X-Rap Magnum in close to the boat so that it draws the fish's attention before the rest of your trolling spread passes by. And I can honestly say we were running the X-Rap Magnum uh, 30 just recently down in the Keys, and that was what we were hitting our biggest dolphin on. So the X-Rap Magnum 20 or 30, great dolphin lure. All right, at number four, I'm going to go a little unconventional, as though this list weren't already unconventional, and I'm going to move away from the trolling lures for a moment and turn to a lure that I like when the fish have dropped deep, when the sun is out and the top of the water column is getting hot. So this is my midday dolphin special. I'm going to go with Shimano's butterfly flat tail, flat fall jig. Yeah, I know you probably don't think of butterfly jigs when dolphin fishing, but when you've gone to jigging big bucktails to try to dig the dolphin up from deep, deep, I find that the Shimano jig is just a great jig for getting at the fish's getting the fish's attention. The wobbling action is bite enticing, and the flutter on the drop is just great. And with more than fifty size and color options, these are just great jigs when the fish are deeper, or if you have them schooling around the boat. Okay, at number three, I want to go all the way up to the surface with the Ozuri Bullpop Floating Popper. This surface-disturbing popper is great for casting the dolphin on the surface. It's got a great castability and phenomenal topwater action. It comes in two options, two size options, and 10 collar patterns. I like to keep one or two spinning outfits rigged with poppers like these for when we get fish at the surface. And the Ozuri Bull Popper is one of the best out there for such situations. Same is true, of course, for Blackfin Tuna or Bonita when they're up at the surface as well. The Ozuri Bull Popper is just fantastic, but it's really great on dolphin up top. Okay, number two. Let's stay with surface poppers for my number two position because the more I think about it, the more I have to admit that as exciting as catching mahi can be while trolling or even jigging, it really is the topwater surface smashing action that turns me on when fishing for dolphin because let's admit it, when a Dorado slams a lure at the surface, it is one of the most exciting things to see on the water. So my number two lure for dolphin is the Shimano Pop Orca. The Pop Orca has what they call a bubble chamber with a wide open mouth design that pushes water through the lure chamber and shoots it out of the top of the lure, creating a lot more commotion than other poppers I've used. It also leaves a really solid bubble trail. It's got a through-wire construction and really strong hooks, making it one of my favorite poppers overall. Oh, and if you want to see my full review of the Pop Orca, you can check it out on YouTube on the Inventive Fishing channel. So a quick recap before we get to my number one dolphin lure. At number 10, Williamson Ballyhoo Combo. At number 9, c Stubby Bubbler, which I just want to say over and over, c Stubby Bubble, c Stubby Bubbler, c Stubby Bubbler, c Stubby Bubbler. At number 8, Islander Islander, Island Islander. Mix that one up in there too, Island Islander, Island Islander Junior. At number 7, Boone Rigged Feather Baits. At number 6, Captain J Fishing Offshore Big Game Trolling Lures. At number 5, the Rapala X-Rap Magnum 20 or 30. At 4, Shimano's Butterfly Fat Fall j- Flat Fall Jig. At number 3, the Ozuri Bull Pop Floating Popper. And at number 2, the Shimano Pop Orca. And that brings us to the Fishing Professor's number 1 Mahi Mahi Lure. And that is... 
Ah, hell, I'm going to break my own rule because the truth of it is the absolute best way to troll for Dorado is a ballyhoo rig with a skirt. So my number one trolling lure is the plastic skirt. Cop out, I know, but what can I say? I've consistently caught more dolphin with plastic skirts with ballyhoo than any other way. Plus, I'm the professor. It's my class. Check out the syllabus. It skirts all the way down. Deal with it. Or send me an email at Sid at InventedFishing.com and tell me I'm a tool of the skirt market or whatever. It's still my call. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Top 10 Dolphin Lures, over and out. Well, as it always happens, we've reached the end of another episode. But the end of an episode just remind us that there's a new episode waiting for us next week. And I'll be back when the week is new. And I'll have more ideas for you. And you'll have things you'll want to do. And I will too. Hey, I want to thank Brian Hendricks of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette for taking the time to chat with me today. And with all sincerity, if you have any interest in turkey hunting, I really, really recommend you get a hand your hands on Brian's book, St. Tom's Cathedral. It is fantastic. In fact, even if you're not a turkey hunter or a hunter at all, I really recommend this book for its insight and for its remarkable story about a man and his love for the outdoors. I also sincerely hope you get the chance to get your hands on a bottle of Woodford Straight Malt Whiskey, and then you get the chance to try out some of those mahi lures I addressed in this week's Top 10 Countdown. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. Your license has expired. I say again, your license has expired. And with that, I say farewell. And always, please be sure to share the broadcast with everyone you know. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!